Neely, I have two problems. What are those? I really love the show on professional development, and I have a big blank spot on my chest where my shirt is. First of all, the first one doesn't sound like a problem. I mean, it's so much love, I can't contain it. And you also have, what, a blank spot on your chest? Yeah, where my shirt is. You you never grew chest hair? Obviously not. (laughs) Oh, I know what you should do. You should go to this link in the show notes and get an unprofessional development t-shirt. Yes, that sounds like exactly what I needed for this premise. So boys and girls, we have t-shirts. We have magnets. We have buttons. Show your unprofessional love. That way you'll get to know who your fellow unprofessionals are when you're walking down the hallway and go, Oh, you listen to that too? Be an unprofessional representative. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a very super episode of Unprofessional Development. I'm Tedisco. And I'm Mealy. And today we have with us Greg Bass. He is a superintendent, or if you're a Simpsons fan, Super Nintendo, up there in um, Calgary, um, Alberta, or Alberta, Calgary. Like, like I just know it's Canada. Um, like a little, um, uh, it's a little uh, Doug What was that? That's a little Doug in, um, uh, whatever his name, SCTV reference, okay, from way back in the way. Greg, you get that reference? I did. Yes. Okay. Good. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. I'll one out then. What do you fine. What do you know about Bob and You know about Bob and Doug McKenzie back on the SCTV to just be a youngster. Anyway, um, so we like people to to um give their bio in in a fun, um, interesting way. So I I came up with um with this one. So describe your educational journey. You're like a server. You know, we've got the table, and you're describing your um your education journey as a as a fancy multi course meal. So just have have fun with the analogy and. And take it where you will. Sure. Well, thank you very much, and uh, thanks for having me on tonight. It's uh, I have a feeling we're going to have a lot of fun with this conversation. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's great to be here. Um, yeah, I'm in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Alberta is the uh, uh, not the farthest west province. Uh, British Columbia is, but we're the we're the just to the to the east of British Columbia. So we're close to the the Pacific side, and of course. You guys are on the Atlantic side, but yeah. my career as a server, uh, described in a server format, started out uh, the first course, I suppose, would be, you know, like uh, all teachers cutting your teeth on, on your teaching career, getting a first job. I worked in uh, northern Alberta and um, taught in a small K-12 school, taught in a, in a, uh, a portable that um, had heat that was intermittent. Nice. So that was the first course. And you then, don't need that uh, much in Canada, right? It's no, not there. at all. Yeah, minus 40 <laughs> nights in the winter, but uh, in some places anyways. And then... Um, the appetizer is cold soup. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and part of that first course, uh, I moved uh, uh, back to uh, Edmonton area, which is where I grew up, which is about three hours north of Calgary. It's, uh, it's the capital of Alberta. And continued uh, cutting my teeth as a teacher for, I guess, about another five years or so and that's the first course i um, learned a lot and then the second course um i guess if that was the soup now the entree i i got uh fast tracked into um into uh leadership school leadership and i took a a course in the district that i was in uh you know it's called administrators for tomorrow and basically a training ground i kicked out of that and i became an assistant principal right away and and then over the next, I guess, 10 years, um, was an assistant principal and principal of two schools. That would be the second course. And then moving on to, um, I guess, the third course. I'm not a very good server. I'm not sure if this is dessert yet or not. But okay. And I moved into central office, and I started as an associate superintendent of HR and a corporate secretary to the board, uh, and then became superintendent in that same district. Then I was superintendent of, a, of another district, all, all told about 11, 12 years. And after that, the fourth and maybe final course, actually, I got to squeeze this in, or maybe this is a six course meal. Then I worked with our government, uh, what you would categorize, uh, in the United States as your state superintendent. Um, okay. I worked in the equivalent position in Alberta, deputy minister of education, which was fascinating and, and really an interesting view yeah. uh, of the education system. And then after that, I came to, um, you know, this, this organization, Calgary Academy, we serve students that um, um, have learning exceptionalities, learning differences. We don't like to say learning disabilities because we believe all of our students are are highly capable. And, you know, it's it's been a, a wonderful journey here. So I don't know if maybe that's the check, really, uh, but uh, that's the end of my, end of my story. <laughs> Love it. Wow. A little after dinner mint. 
I'm glad you went to a program for of uh, administrators for the future because administrators for the past would have been really bad. This yes, is that, that, yes, learning that. how to make dunce caps and hit kids with rulers. Right. <laughs> Sit in the corner and yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very curious. We've had uh, a couple of administrators um, uh, on our program and, and, and one person who's acted as a superintendent in New York. And they've all given us, said the same thing. They said that when they, they got to that administrative level, that they were constantly being pushed and pulled in different directions. They said that, you know, that they, they really needed to know who they were because like they were constantly kind of challenged in that sort of way. Right. So when you were there, when you were the boss, is there anything that, that you changed that's made you feel like the most positive? Like it, so. The things that have come across and, and, you know, the things that you've been sort of forced to deal with, is there anything you can really like stand by and be like, you know, you're really proud of that and that represents you? Fantastic question. So I've been, how old am I? <laughs> <laughs> I had the same conversation know. with somebody I today. I, I guess know. in my, I, I'm just in my Google how old were you if you were born on your birthday and that'll, that, that'll yeah. tell you. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure it out. I think I'm in my, uh, my 34th or 35th year, career, a year in uh, of my career in education. So, Obviously, the the longer I go in this, the the more I'm tilted on the scales of being in leadership position than teaching, and and that of course is a critique for people like me. As it's been a while since I've been in the classroom, but I guess I'm leading up to the answer in the sense that I'm very proud of um, I'm very proud of what I've been able to do in my career, and, I, and it's not not myself. It's the the first and foremost the teams I've worked on. Uh, we've been able to accomplish some amazing things for students, and and so the answer, specific answer, would be. I think what I what I became known for in this province and even in even uh, in a Canadian context was somebody that was a champion of of, uh, of 21st century learning. And I know the term is, has become somewhat dated and, and misused now, but it's really looking at transforming a, a factory model of education uh, into a system that is really designed around the students, student centered, truly student centered, not adult centered. And, and what makes, you know, we as adults comfortable, but. What is it that students need and want? And let's build the system around them. But also, let's have a system that's preparing them for their future and not our past. And uh, I know you probably have a question about challenges coming up, but that is full of opportunity and excitement. And it's also full of challenges. But I will say, uh, certainly a highlight of my career is the work we're doing here, the work I did in my previous district, and even the work I was doing in the province leading, you know, AKA that would be similar to the state, uh, was leading that change agenda and we were making significant progress, high, very high levels of student engagement, academic uh, measures, however you want to measure them on large scale tests or, or more formative assessments, uh, were really tracking significantly, uh, to the positive side and, um, just a real buzz in the district. So I'm very, very, uh, proud of that. And, um, it's just, it's a really tough, tough beast to, uh, to transform. Oh, yes. Yeah. I was going to say, what motivated you, inspired you, kind of like, you know, had you make this decision versus, you know, there are a lot of people who just come in and they kind of work their way up the corporate ladder and they just kind of, you know, schmooze. Right. And you just, and you just go, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm part of the machine now and I'm going to try and like, you know, not mess it up and not get myself in trouble and just kind of like, um, ride this out. So how, how did you, um, decide that a you wanted to be an agent of change and um, and b was there someone or something that said that like flicked the switch for you or said something hey I think it should be done this way as opposed to that way. Yeah, great question, Mealy. I think uh, I'll just go back uh, for a sec to uh, your very own education secretary. I think under President Reagan, uh, William Bennett, Bill Bennett, coined the term the blob, and uh, I used to talk to my administrators, my principals uh, about that. And um, that we would never want to be uh, categorized as that. And in essence, what he was talking about is that administrators of education systems are are talking about change while at the same time, very quietly rallying the troops around, trying to negate the change and stop it. Because let's face it, human nature changes disconcerting for, for many and it takes tremendous courage. I've said for years in my career, this is not for the faint of heart. And, and um, what drives me and what has driven me, I guess, and, I've always been focused on leadership back to our, our hockey discussions and, you know, leading sports teams and things. And, you know, you don't know how that happened. It just sort of, sort of happened. But, um, 
I realized as I moved into, you know, even school leadership and then into central leadership, I had a tremendous responsibility to um, use the the uh, influence that I had in a positive way for youth. And I wasn't concerned about um, career. I wasn't concerned about spotlight. I wasn't concerned about anything. I, I just couldn't help but think about the students that, that I worked passionately with when I was a teacher. I mean, uh, one of my highlights in my career, I was, I was a graduation guest speaker three times in two different schools. One as a teacher, uh, one as an assistant principal, one as a principal. And it's really strange. I mean, despite trying to tell the, the graduating class, please pick somebody that's worthy, you know, and, so I had a great relationship with students. And as I moved into leadership positions, I knew I had two paths to take in front of me, mm-hmm. not to get Robert Frost on, <laughs> on anybody here, but I really could could become part of the machine and just, you know, steady as she goes, nobody move, nobody get hurt. Let's not disrupt stuff. Anybody's complaining, let's give them what they want or make the problem go away, that type of leadership. Mm-hmm. Or I could truly begin to unravel a system that, you know, at times collapses under its own weight put the students at the center and design it. And and when you couple it, I was very fortunate and I've been very fortunate, hopefully will continue to be fortunate in my career, that the the rapid rate of change happening in society was beginning to shape and, and help drive the narrative and the imperative for change within education. Mm-hmm. And that really um, warmed my heart because there there was a there was a runway at least a very narrow one but one that you begin to take that you could create the narratives yeah. to say look we're making these changes we're designing schools differently we're looking at different instructional design for high levels of student engagement different ways to assess students you know and looking at all the facets of the system different ways to lead build organizations high trust because we really do and and also fostering competencies that are going to help students transition into a world where jobs may not exist. I mean, our kindergarten students here are graduating in, in what, 2034? What's the world going to look like in 2034? And, yeah. and you know, anywhere from 30 to 50% of the current jobs that we have most likely won't exist. So what are we actually preparing them for in, in right. education systems? It's, I think it's the number one challenge educators face today. And and so with that mindset of, of really, um, I don't call it a risk, others would say, but taking Taking um, that challenge on and really putting the students at the center, I think, um, has really been been very rewarding. And, um, you know, I, I would argue that that, for me, um, just came down to um, how do you how do you want to, you know, shape your career as an educational leader? And I, I chose the path to be, I guess, the uh, the one that was um, was disruptive. Oh, boy, it takes me back to disco. OK, so when I was on, I I knew my. My English professor, he quoted Neil Young in his syllabus. So I knew, like, whenever you're writing, you gotta, you gotta know your audience. So I Mm -hmm. remember writing an essay where I quoted both Robert Frost and Led Zeppelin. And I kind of took the, took the, um, the, you know, the two roads, blah, blah, blah. And then I also said, you know, but then Led Zeppelin said, um, in the end, there's still time to change the road you're on. So, and I kind of like, um, link those two. Um, there's I had some paired texts for you to disco. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, good job. Thank you. Oh my goodness. Oh, he ate it up. I got a good grade on that. So, um, <laughs> that's phenomenal. You know, yeah. I, it, it's funny. You say like, you know, preparing kids for jobs that don't even exist yet. I was having a similar conversation with one of my colleagues where they were complaining, Oh man, some of these kids are coming in in their pajamas. They can't be doing that. And I'm thinking, why? Like, <laughs> how many jobs are going to be work from home? Like, post-COVID, yes. like, so many jobs are transitioning to be work from home. And, yeah, kids do need to know, like, when to dress up and stuff. But also, they just need to get the work done. Like, I don't yes. have a problem with you wearing PJs if you're doing the work. Yes. Yeah. Like, and and, and see, that's one of those. The teachers get hung up on some of those little details. Here's the deal. Mm-hmm. When they actually go to the job, Someone will tell them, you know, I mean, hey, <laughs> like, we don't do that here, you know, so you get tomorrow, you're going to have to wear some khakis. It varies. I, like I said, I, I still have that argument with some, certain people. I'm like, um, I don't know if you noticed this, but the billionaires are wearing like black t shirts now. So, um, I think it's okay. But, um, that's, and so do I. I I'm just like a billionaire. But, um, I'm going down a little bit of a rabbit hole here, but I once worked at, at a job, like a cubicle job, and they had kind of a strict dress code. So one of the guys decided to protest it 
by dressing in like following the the work dress code he came in as the joker white face paint but a suit and a tie bright nice. green suit purple nice. shirt it's fantastic that is that is good stuff <laughs> they told him not to do that anymore yeah there you go uh, all right i'm very very curious about this i'm i'm really fascinated in the nuts and bolts of superintendenting yeah. Because I've, I've described it before as, as to like most teachers, it's like Oz behind the curtain. Like, I know you're doing stuff, but I couldn't tell you like day to day what it looks like. So when you're talking about like making those changes for, for schools and the schools you've been working at, percentage wise, like ballpark it, what do you think is the percent of like that's programs that you're pushing for that you think will help? And what percentage of that is you actually holding back like the floodwaters of of the the expectations and the things coming down from on high saying like this needs to be done and you have to hold back and say no and defend the teachers. <laughs> well, interesting, interesting way you frame that. <clears throat> um, and I'm going to throw a curveball back at you because it really I think it really depends on your leadership style and and what drives you. I think I've I've expressed you know what has driven me in my career and what continues to drive me. So I think if, if you're, if you're an individual and maybe, maybe even the moniker of leader isn't really the right, the right label. Maybe it's more manager, but, uh, if you're a leader that's trying to maintain a status quo and trying to make sure that there's no rumblings and, you know, let's just keep everything static, then it would argue that, you know, those percentages, if we, if we express them as percentages, you'd be spending maybe 10, 20% of your, your time of, of trying to drive some, some changes and, and 80% of your try- time trying to manage from from anything that's being thrust on the district because you're really trying to keep it in homeostasis, right? Um, and and I'm an oddball. You you've just locked out talking to a superintendent that probably doesn't fit the mold. I, I know you have some fantastic superintendents in the U.S. and follow some of them on Twitter and 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 that are really dynamic. So I don't mean to be disparaging to any of them. It's a tough tough job. Um, but I but you're sp- better. We get it. No, no, I, no! I wouldn't say that at all. He's a super superintendent. I wouldn't say that at all. A super duper intendant. Yeah, I, it. it depends how you how you would how you would assess better or not. I mean, many would probably say I'm worse, but I would say that to answer your question, um, I would spend uh, the vast majority of my time looking at how to uh, implement the types of changes in the schools that we're talking about, um, and leading at the elbow side by side with teachers, with school leaders, having conversations, finding out, you know, what's working well, what do I need to try to resource to fix things? Is it time? Is it money? Is is it is it calendar structures? How do we how do we establish professional learning structures that that are allowing our adults to to learn and model so that they can, you know, model uh, learning as a priority with their students, those types of things. And we know that if you can create those those off ramps for teachers, um, the vast majority are so enthusiastic and driven to, to drive these changes. It's why we're in education. I mean, mm-hmm. not in it to get rich. I mean, we, we believe <laughs> in, in students and, and we want to do right by students. And I find that the more that you give teachers that opportunity and the wonderful support staff that opportunity to create these wonderful learning experiences, they'll do it. Just like students in classrooms. If we have teachers let go, even just a little bit of that command and control. I mean, the late Sir Ken Robinson talked about, it's not about command and control, it's about climate control. If we can let go in classrooms and empower students to say, these are the outcomes of this unit. These are the outcomes we're trying to hit with this. You know, let's let's dive deep and let's, let's maybe create some sort of inquiry-based learning or project-based learning and really unlock their abilities. I mean, they'll blow you away with what they're capable of doing. And I know, you know, those amazing teachers across, you know, the world, North America, the United States are doing that day in, day out. And their, te- their students are off the charts. So in my view, I would spend the vast majority of my time trying to deal with any of the roadblocks that the schools and the teachers were facing to try to accomplish that type of vision versus trying to translate a mandate in our case, well, in, in, in South, in South Carolina, North Carolina, North would Carolina be, yeah. Yeah. It would be from the state. Um, here it's from the province. I would spend less time trying to be the barrier and the block of that and, and diffusing that and really being focused on what's happening with our students in our district. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It does. It does. Um, and as you know, I don't know if you know this, but I'm, I'm, I've got a book in the works. It's, it's, um, called, um, just shut the door and teach. Um, so when they, 
so when those some of those ma- some of those mandates come down and all of that stuff goes on, it's like, listen, you, you literally don't have time to be in all of the classrooms in the school, and the, the chances of anyone actually being inside my classroom, and, unless I'm doing something illegal or immoral, it, it's it's going to be okay ninety nine percent of the time. But the, but then tied to that, which I'm thankful I'm not in one of those um, content areas right now. But um, and I know this. Is, is the challenge for superintendents, teachers, admins, everywhere along the line, is that often the public doesn't have time to come into schools and see the kids doing that stuff, and nor do they 100% understand everything that's going on and why you're making this choice. They might only just see something that looks different, and it might look fun to them, it might look cool, or they, whatever they come in with, whatever lens they're looking through. But often they look at two things, and that's the graduation rate, and test scores, because those are the easiest things to go out on the on the evening news or put in the newspaper. Or we can literally make the test scores like all hundreds and the graduation rate a hundred percent. We just have to change the curve and you know change our grading system. And and it, you know because the grading because the graduation rate went up five or down five percent doesn't mean more or less learning took place this year to last year. You exactly. know, but how do you handle? The fact that that often is the um, stuff like that, and, and what has been your um, history and your graduation rates? Did they generally go up or down or stay the same? And and did you have any challenges with that? Well, definitely challenges with with the narrative. But but to answer your last question first, I, I've um, been fortunate enough. I said it earlier to work with incredible teams, including the one I'm working with here. That um, you know the results that uh, in the organizations that I've been been in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and had the privilege of leading. I mean, we have shown on those large scale measures, we have shown uh, tremendous growth. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, depending on the size of the districts that I've been leading, I mean, sometimes, you know, one, one and a half percent year over year or on a three year average is, is quite significant. In smaller right. organizations, five, six, seven percent is not unheard of. But, yeah. but again, you, you hit something that's really important to me, and that is, um, you know, what's the old saying about not everything that's valued can be measured and not everything that's measured is valued. And, yes. and I think that uh, I'll come to the parents in the community in a minute because they mean well. Um, yeah. But but as what would I do, uh, you know, and what do I do? I think I've always said and I've always mentored principals to say that your your most important job is not the, you know, the the wording that's out there right now. It's coming back sort of. Uh, Vogue is, is the buildings, budgets, and, and what's the other B? Uh, buildings, budgets. I don't know. I don't know what Bananas. it is. Yeah, maybe. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that just gets into the managerial and you need to take care of the managerial. But uh, the, the principles that I've mentored, it's, it's really that you need to see yourself and you need to act as the instructional leader in the building. And when you look at Marzano and Waters research coming out of 2006, they, they actually studied principles and the very best principles in the, in the, the the main finding, without boring your listeners, if I haven't already, <laughs> is that um, the very best principals who are driving results and driving high levels of student engagement and had an amazing school culture saw themselves and acted as the primary instructional leader in the building, not as the individual who closed the door and worked on the budget and made sure the buses were all there and did all. And it's building that would be budget. the third B. Yeah, yeah, yeah that is the buses. third B. Uh, you know, and and. Absolutely, that work needs to be done. And, and certainly from my experience, I, you know, I chose to do that very early in the morning after, after school ended weekends, uh, because I wanted to be present. I even, you know, at times I would tell staff, uh, you know, or I would tell parents that, you know, if it's an absolute emergency and you're trying to reach me as a principal and to deal with, you know, what's going on, you know, absolutely I'll be there if a child's in danger. But if it's to talk to me about something, if you could please respect between the hours of, you know, eight and three thirty, I am with your child and all the children in the school working with the teachers. And, you know, I will, I will connect with you at four o'clock. Uh, I'll connect with you tomorrow morning at seven a.m., but I need to be present. You know, and of course, there's always uh, uh, flares and things that come up that that prevent that. But mm-hmm. but I had parents really respect that, even though they're frustrated initially, they really came to respect that. And so that's what I coach and and mentor principals to do. And here's the kicker: um, as a superintendent, I view myself as the primary instructional leader of the district. And Marzano and Waters prove that as well through their their meta analysis is that superintendents actually do have a positive effect on student learning. 
when there's a number of conditions present, tenure, you know, um, vision, strat- strategy. But number one, once again, was they were they were actively engaged in the interface of teaching and learning. And they saw themselves as a primary instructional leader that was both learning alongside the teaching staff, but also a coach and a guide and supporting the process that was going on back to the center of, of students, you know, of what was best for students. And so that's what I would say to that is, is it really comes down to how you see yourself, which then translates into how you act as a leader and you have full control over that. I mean, I could bury myself completely in administrative. Uh, 12 hours a day, probably yeah. six days a week. Um, that's not the issue. Um, it's really, where do I see that I'm going to have the greatest impact? And, you know, that's, that's what I would argue that the very best superintendents you have in the United States, in my opinion, and here in Canada, are the ones that would view themselves in that regard. When uh, uh, we did our, our Edupadlooza over the summer, we had a, a whole hour we called the Magic Wand Hour. Um, where we asked everybody on Twitter if they had a magic wand that could fix something about education, what would they fix? So uh, th- you have this this sort of full perspective. You've been in the classroom, you've been administration, you've been central office, and and now superintendent. So if, if you could fix something or change something about education, um, you have the the max authority. You are the genie of all education, and you can change it. What would that be? Hmm. Can I have two wands to wave? Yeah, sure. Okay. The first one, you ask for two wands. That's what you do. (laughs) (laughs) May I have two wands? Okay, thank you. So the first wand, um, well, I'll tell you the two wands. First of all is instructional design, and the second wand is is, um, parents' uh, community. Uh, So coming back to um, instructional design for a minute, a researcher that I worked at the uh, University of Calgary, um, she was on my defense committee um, for my doctoral work, is um, is one of one of the top researchers in the world around student engagement. And she produced uh, a document called uh, What Did You Do in School Today? It's gone through different iterations. But in that in that research, her and a research partner, Doug Wilms, were able to create a student engagement measure. So it was a matrix of, of trying to engage student student engagement in, in classrooms. Anyways, I'll cut to the punchline. Um, what they found was that 12-year-olds were 50%, depending if, if you're a glass half full, half empty. I'll, I'll do half empty on this because it's trying to build the narrative that, that we need to fix things. Uh, 50% of the students were disengaged. So this is grade five, you know, five, six-ish. Um, and then by the time uh, students were moving into high school, so grade nine, mm-hmm. uh, getting to the age of 14, 15, that percentage increased to about 70%. Wow. And that research is in the first decade of the 21st century. I would argue in the third decade of the 20th century, that delta is probably wider. And and why is, I mean, we're living in, back to Sir Ken, the late Sir Ken Robinson for a second, we're living in potentially the most aesthetically stimulated time period in human history. Mm-hmm. Yet if we're still using the the, the factory sort of model of, of stand and deliver, lecture and test, you know, I believe that student engagement is maybe one of the greatest maladies of, of our public education systems across the world. And so the first wand I would wave is to have an earnest conversation and a deep dive into instructional design that is going to drive student engagement through the roof. Once again, if we want to build systems that are focused in on what's best for students, I think that's what we would all do. And it's a call to action for teachers and sports staff school administrators, central office administrators, and state officials, in my opinion. And and the results, don't get me started on that. If you want to measure the results <laughs> on these large-scale assessments, you will see greater results on large-scale assessments because I have some experience in doing this work in a fairly large district. And even on our large-scale, I'm not sure if you're aware, in Alberta, we have diploma exams. We have what we call provincial achievement exams at grades 3, 6, 9. Diploma exams are worth 50% weight in grade 12. Even on those large scale assessments, our students were showing year over year growth by a fundamentally different instructional design in most of our high schools. And so it does work. And then secondly, around parents and community, it is an unrelenting and daunting task of superintendents and leaders alike and teachers for that matter is to build the capacity for the change agenda. Why change? That is a two word question. 
mm-hmm. that you could spend hours with thousands of people in an auditorium discussing and unpacking. Why change? Why would you change education, which has driven us to so much success coming out of the 20th century? I mean, look at, look at the economies we've built. And that needs to, we need to spend a ton of time with our communities, state officials here in Canada, provincial and national officials and, and staff members, but parents mainly because parents are entrusting us with their, their loved ones. And what reference do they have is an education system that was exactly what I described. Stand and deliver, read this part in the textbook, do those questions, what you don't finish, do for homework. And we wonder why kids are disengaged. And oh, by the way, here's a little pop quiz I'm giving you first thing in the morning because I I don't trust that you did all the work. So now I'm going to test that theory. And so that's the reference that parents have for good or bad. And so even if they are open and honest, and I've had many conversations with parents that I would say, look, tell me honestly, what was school like for you? Because I would tell them stories about my high school experience. Yeah. I made it through. I knew the principal was hanging on. They were dang- He was dangling the keys that I had to abide by all of these structures to get out yep. uh, and move on with my life. So I was compliant. Was I engaged? No. Did I enjoy the, the classes? I had great teachers, but I did I enjoy what I was doing? Drilling through Pythagorean theorem and all these other abstract things. Did I enjoy that? Absolutely not. But I no, played. I, I wanted to know exactly what I had to do to pass and then do that and nothing exactly. more. Exactly. Yeah. But when you talk to parents, when you begin to have this conversation, I'd, I'd say to parents, so tell me, I just told you honestly about my experience. And this is why I'm so passionate about trying to redesign the education experience and the learning experience for our students. Because I believe in their future and I want them to have this brilliant future. And I don't want them to resent this experience. I want them to love this experience. So, mm-hmm. you know, so you've just admitted to me that high school for you was really boring. You enjoyed the socializing and the parties and the, you know, all the stuff, but you did not like school. Yet here we are 30 years later. You want us to replicate that exact same structure <laughs> for your son or daughter. Yeah. Like yeah. I can't. Please help me with that. So I would have a number of parents through these conversations that begin to go, oh, I'm beginning to see what you're talking about, Greg. I'm beginning to understand that like all other professions, we expect it to be cutting edge. We expect it to be research-based. We expect it to move. You don't go to a doctor and say, you know, I have a pain, an abdominal pain. And the doctor says, well, let me pull out my 1950s research book around abdominal pain. Have you tried (laughs) doing cocaine about it? (laughs) <laughs> you probably walk you probably walk out of the you probably walk out of the doctor's office and say no I'm going to go find another doctor who's taking 2022 research right, right. so we expect that in all other professions but for some reason we, we, we struggle so my second wand would be um, a universal understanding or at least an openness to have conversations about how we can redesign these systems in yeah, students I, I saw a little meme the other day and um it said, if your philosophy was, well, I did it and I, and I turned out fine, you didn't turn out fine. Right. <laughs> and, and let's also acknowledge the fact that we're the lucky ones. Like, yes. systems kind yes. of built for people like us. Like, we're yes. lucky that we made it out because a lot of people didn't. A lot of people hit that, that point and couldn't do it. Right. right? So, yes. yeah, it, it's got to change. I, I talk about that sort of stuff a lot with my students, too. I I'd read I forget where I would read this, um, but I, I'd read that this generation of of humans, right? The, the youngsters <laughs> today are the most savvy in terms of storylines, like in terms of storylines and storytelling. They can watch a, a show or a movie with 18 different characters and keep track of all their character arcs and know everything that's happening. Which is mind blowing, considering my parents grew up watching Bonanza, no, which had no, one no. guy for an hour. Days of Our Lives, okay. I'm telling you, there's a lot of characters on Days of Our Lives, and I knew all of them. Okay. Yes, anyway. and five tropes that they well, did in Endless that's Cycle. True. Yes, I'm but actually like, her identical twin. Anyway. But like, uh, kids are used to to seeing that sort of uh, sort of stuff, and you know, watching Marvel movies with 50 characters flying yes. out of every corner. And then they come in and I say, all right, let's read chapter five of the same book. And it's the same story of the same character. And they know how it ends and they've known how it ends since day one. And they're going nuts about it. We need to do something drastically different about curriculum. I think especially when it comes to reading, we need to make reading engaging and we need to make it applicable. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to play devil's advocate again here for a little bit. 
when you, you're a superintendent. How big, how big a um, district was it and uh, roughly how many um, schools, students, whatever you want to break it down in terms of the, the, the size of the, um, the district? The last district I was in was 25,000, about, you know, 50 schools. But when I was okay. in the ministry, yeah. uh, 61 school districts, 700,000 um, students and, you know, about 2,300 schools. So it oh depends on the context. Wow. Wow. So I, so that's a lot. That is a lot. That is a lot. So that's, so that's the, that's, that is the question. I know the superintendent at, at my school. We, we, he has no idea who I, who I am and, and doesn't know what I teach and how I teach it and what, and what I, and what I do. How do you actually know what is, what is your litmus test, your measuring stick for knowing what's going on in the schools? What's news and noise and what's anecdotal? So yeah. how do you know? Like what's really happening as opposed to like what you think is happening? Great question. A uh, couple things I'd say embrace big data. Okay. Um, and make sure that, make sure that, that uh, back to earlier part of our conversation that what you're measuring is, is truly giving you the answers to the questions that you, that you want answers to. So sure there will be state mandates of, of, you know, data that they will collect that's non-negotiable in a district level. But no one ever said that the district can't collect its own data. I mean, in the districts that I've been in, I've introduced very large data sets to really back up our strategic plan, always designed it locally, never took, you know, the province and said, this, these are the things we made sure we were compliant with the province, but we created local context strategic planning. But what that obviously also requires is that you're going to have local measures to see whether what you say you're doing, you're actually doing and you're being successful. So that's one. The other is, and I don't want to put pressure on any other superintendent that would listen to this, you know, district of 25,000 is fundamentally different than one of 150, but I was still very busy, but I made it a commitment that once a month I would tour uh, a certain pot of schools. So I would take uh, two days out of a week. So every fourth week, two days I was on the road and I would spend two hours in each of these schools. So I would be in three schools a day. If you do the math, sometimes I could squeeze in four depending on the time I was there. Mm-hmm. But the first hour was with the leadership team, you know, and they would be talking to me. I'd be asking them, what, how's the school strategic plan going? You know, what's working well? What are your challenges? And how can I help you, et cetera, et cetera. But I always made it non-negotiable, even when things were running late or, you know, um, that I would spend the second hour with students. Mm-hmm. And we would do, you know, I'd be in classes. I'd be, I'd be reading with them. I'd be working alongside them. I'd be talking to them, spending time in you know, history classes or social studies. And, you know, they might be asking me questions. I'd be spending time with teachers, be asking them what's going on and then pack up all my notes and, and off to the next place. So, um, Ooh, I got a, I got a question with that though. Who, who picked the classrooms you went to? Oh, I would, I would meander. So sometimes the principal of course would, would have, you know, certain activities and things like that. And I'd partake. I remember one, one time I was asked to bring my rollerblades in back when rollerblades were, were, <laughs> were old. And, uh, you know, I was in the, in the gym with, you know, like a hundred elementary kids and we're rollerblading around. That's, that's fine. But no, I wasn't navigated to come see this shiny, shiny sort of rock star classroom. Right. Avoid this uh-huh. I, would, yeah. I would walk around and I'd ask questions and I'd interact with students and I'd ask them the same types of, of things. What's working well? How's your learning going? And, you know, how do you like your school? And, and, and how can we improve uh, your mm-hmm. experience? How can we improve this place? And obviously, I mean, back to the one question. I didn't have a magic wand to make all challenges disappear, but I really had my finger on the pulse of what was going on and it helped to grind, uh, grind. It was a grind at times, I suppose, when I had to deal with it, but, but I, it helps ground, uh, really uh, ground me when I was, you know, in board meetings and I was talking to my senior leadership teams about the things that are going on in the district and things that we need to work on to make things better. Um, so Again, and in larger districts, when I was a deputy minister, I mean, I would do that and I'd meet with superintendents and boards. Granted, I wasn't in a lot of classrooms unless I was invited as some sort of dignitary. Here comes a deputy minister. But uh-huh. that didn't mean that I couldn't have ministry staff doing that and reporting right. in to, to find out what was going on. And I really pushed our staff out uh, across the province, a.k.a. the state, to really find out what was going on in different districts. And mm-hmm. There's ways to do it if that, again, is is something that's driving you. And again, I couldn't get, I've never been able to get this instructional leader piece out of uh, my practice as a leader. And um, I guess that that's kind of why why that's driven me. I'd say those two things have made a big difference, made it. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, cool. 
And I, and I think that, I think that's valid. I think, I think that obviously there's certain things I, I still don't 100% know if you do know or don't know, but you're trying. You know what I mean? Like, I still yeah. think at some point there's could be some. There's system. no guarantee, but like from that far away, you got to cast a wide net. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's only so much can you can you, do. Another, Go ahead. another way that I, that I kept my finger on the pulse of what was going on in the district was, um, and, and this might be my moniker when I, when I hang up my skates. <laughs> and uh, retire. But uh, <laughs> when I first went into central office, my first superintendency, I sat down with the associates and the senior uh, officials and I said, so this strategic plan that's in front of me, how was it designed? Oh, well, easy, Greg. We hire a consultant. We pay him $10,000. He comes in for a week a year. He interviews some trustees, some principals, some central office folks, a few teachers, writes the plan. And it's fundamentally, it's perfect. It's, it's compliant with everything that the province, state needs in a strategic plan. And I said, this will be the last time we ever do it this way. And so immediately after that, this was in the spring. Immediately after that, I went to the board and I said, here's my plan to take 10 months to build the next strategic plan. And we're going to involve students, teachers, support staff, bus drivers, members of the community, parents, administrators, central office staff. And you have to imagine the commitment of taking that long of a time, but Bringing people in to sit in heterogeneous groupings. Imagine having, you know, a grade nine student, a grade 12 student, a couple of parents, a principal, a teacher, and a board member sitting and asking these questions about what does education need to look like in this district in 2015 and beyond? Let's say it's 2011 when we're starting our plan. But using that collaborative process, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Supreme Court Justice that you guys probably know well in your great, great country. (laughs) <laughs> 1901, he said, I don't give a wit about simplicity before complexity, but I'll give my left arm for complexity before simplicity. You can, you can take a simple approach and create a strap plan in a week and have nothing but confusion. Nobody knows what's going on. So everybody does their own thing. Mm-hmm. Or you can embrace the complexity, take 10 months, take hundreds of people's time, invest a bunch of money because you got to backfill and have subs for people to come in and talk to you. But now you create this coalition of people who put their hearts and dreams and aspirations, including students, on the table, and you create a strategic plan where now you go after it. And that helps in so many ways. But back to your point about how do you know what's going on? Again, it's not perfect. I don't know what's going on in every classroom and every school. But boy, oh boy, have we got a, a, a dynamic mix of voices from people who love this place, putting their ideas on the table. Um, you really get a sense for what's going on in your district, what's working well, and what are the areas you need to improve. And then hopefully you create goals to, to go after. And then if you're any kind of leader, in my view, you're going to follow through on that. You're going to be yeah. open with your community. You're that- going to have those people be champions for what the work you're doing. And you create this coalition and this vibrancy and this excitement that well, well, doesn't happen. Uh, sometimes they, they do that. And then um, two years later, there's a new superintendent and um, – <laughs> Can I tell you a quick story about that? Yeah, my, go for it. Oh, go yes. For it. Yes, we love so that. My, yes. So my doctoral research was on I, – I'm, I'm a very unique character for many, many reasons. But I actually had uh, an approved uh, doctoral research proposal that went through ethics review and everything else. And it was superintendents that build high trust with school boards. Mm-hmm. I ended up doing, because of the work I was doing in my district and how things were transforming and fundamentally changing, I was getting pressure from the province and the university I was in to say, Greg, you have to ditch that proposal and you have to write about what's going on in your district and do research so that the educational community can learn from it. So the research I ended up doing was the effectiveness of large scale transformational change in an urban district. So Mm -hmm. very practical, very informative, something I think superintendents and school boards across North America, almost without fail, struggle with. But Mm -hmm. let's park that. But my first topic, the reason I was interested in that was that I saw a number of my colleagues that would be in for a year or two or three and then gone. And in the United States, it's even worse. Oh, I think yeah. the average, when I read the research, the average tenure of a superintendent was 2.6 years. So back to Marzano and Waters research where they said, if you have a superintendent whose tenure is longer than seven or nine years, they had a correlation into higher performance. Once again, different assessments. We yeah. probably would disagree in the assessments, but the assessment, they were showing... Long, they were showing gains the longer the superintendent was in place. Yeah. 
versus the disruption. Look at the taxpayer cost of severance. Look at all the changes of having the money it costs to go and hire another one and the speed yeah. it takes for him or her to get up to speed and the time, the sorry, the lost time. Yeah. So I didn't do that, but I was very interested in that phenomenon. I had colleagues that were 20 year superintendents and others that didn't last 20 months. And the impact on students is understated. It is significant. And I know in, in a lot of states, in a lot of districts, I know what you're going through. It's that, yeah. it's that churn. Like every there's two a, years, and, you have a new And sometimes person. it's, sometimes it's the district that's doing it. And then there's also, um, to get Human to become, to, well, I was gonna say, no, to get to become superintendent, you have to be relatively driven to, um, climb up the education ladder. And yeah. so a lot of them are like, well, I'm just going to be at this district for a couple of years. I'll show that I can raise the graduation rate and the test scores here. And then I'll go to this district because they'll pay me like this many dollars over here. Or maybe someone comes and recruits them and says, Hey, we just lost this guy because, you know, he went, he went to like this one and it kind of becomes almost like a, a vicious circle. And, um, you know, we talked about sports and hockey and all that stuff. And I know it happens in hockey and football and all that, like the kind of like the, the changing of the head coach mentality where it's like the guy didn't even give it, given a chance to see if his actual, his program, his philosophy or whatever worked. And we go, Hey, like, well, this we didn't make it to the championship in three years, so he must be garbage. It's like, well, by the way, only one out of like thirty can actually win the championship. So, so uh, maybe you should give him like a few more years. But same thing, you know, what this didn't happen, and we got to go get somebody else. Or and it, and it just seems to be that kind of mentality that superintendents are are, are very similar to um, head coaches of sports. I've, I've found in terms of yeah, can I just can I just qualify that that it is a different phenomenon in uh in your country from what i've observed mm -hmm. uh, than what i've experienced in canada i'm not saying yeah. the phenomenon doesn't exist yeah but um you know when i was starting that research i mean i was reading stories of and maybe it's folklore but but superintendents that you know would have drivers and that would be shuttled into central office into different schools and and they're you know dressed really like in really fancy suits oh and always, you know, it's oh it's a ceo position in so many places yeah well yeah and so and that's fine that, you know, you can't, you can't sort of judge a book by its cover. That person may be the most dynamic superintendent and student centered person in the entire world. And, you know, that's why they're in the, you know, leading the largest district. Maybe it's New York City public schools is an example, the largest right. district you have. But I think we also know that sometimes that is not necessarily what meets the eye. So ju not judging a book by its cover cuts both ways. So mm -hmm. it could be the other way where in terms of substance, in terms of what's actually occurring, to your point, I'm going to make sure that we move the levers on these two metrics mm -hmm. because that supports my case to move from a district of 150,000 to a district of 250,000. Yeah. You know, and back to the genesis of why you want to be in, in a position that I've always regarded as a tremendous honor, tremendous responsibility, but a tremendous honor is that it doesn't matter the size of the district that I'm in. Um, what matters is the lives of the students that yeah. you have the ability to positively impact. And are mm -hmm. you doing that in earnest? That That's really the fundamental question. If I was a recruiter, that's what I would be drilling into, not a couple of these metrics that look like they've moved and maybe they did move here or there. Right. I, would be, I would be talking about things like student engagement measures. I'd be talking about um, the, the experience of students, instructional design, the, the strategic planning that you're doing. I want to get into the core, the brass tacks of your operation to really find out uh, what's making you tick in this role. I imagine, too, a lot of administrators, like, because I imagine your job can also be incredibly reactionary. Like, you're probably getting hit with stuff all the time. And I imagine if you're not a tough enough person, it's easy to get swallowed up in being reactionary instead of saying, let me plan for something 10 months down the line. Yep. You're absolutely right. I mean, depending on the size, the size of the district obviously doesn't always indicate the level of uh, or the complexity or the fires, but usually it does. Mm -hmm. In a district of 150,000, I mean, your superintendent is dealing with, you know, on any given day, two or three major issues. Um, it could be an active shooter on a campus. It could be a bus accident. It could be. And so there's a lot of that um, that requires full 100% attention and care before you can get to your point, before you can get to that stuff around, okay, but what's happening in classrooms with students around teaching and learning? And there's no doubt that it can be, it can be consuming. But once again, even when I was in the ministry and we dealt with some major, major issues, as you can well imagine, 
I never lost sight of the fact that my primary role was to lead um, the teaching and learning system, the education system across the province. And I needed to create space. Some days that space shrunk down to very little, but I needed to always create space on a daily basis to assess and evaluate what we were doing to impact that. And let's face it, some days, just like being a teacher, some days are glorious and they're way (laughs) better than others. And the ability to move forward, move those yardsticks, football, move those yardsticks further down the field. Some days you're moving them half a yard. Other days you're going all the way down to the end zone. And, and you just cannot lose sight of the fact of what that primary purpose is because it's easy to become the fire extinguisher. You can be mm-hmm. consumed with those issues. Yeah. And and I would argue the parallel is teachers are no different in a classroom of 30 students. Oh, definitely. You could constantly be dealing with the issues and not really looking at the bigger picture of, okay, how am I designing this classroom? What? How is the interaction between yep. us? What are we trying yeah. to accomplish together? I'm the lead learner in this classroom. We're all learning this. How can I coach and navigate these students along this learning journey? Instead, yeah. I'm dealing with the, the student who's not paying attention, doesn't have uh, his or her materials came in late and it, I become in a different scale, no different than a superintendent of a large district where I'm yep. always just putting out the fires and that cortisol level. Sorry. I'll go on a step further. Uh oh. Cortisol <laughs> level. Become, watch out. You can become addicted to that. And I've watched people whose job it is for crisis management. When I was in government, that was their full time job. And we dealt with crises. We had floods. We had issues, fires, all that stuff. Right. And when there was all low, the I watched, I watched these individuals almost lose a sense of purpose because they were so wired yeah. for yeah. these cortisol levels off the charts and always being in crisis mode that when we were calm and trying to be strategic, they mm-hmm. didn't know what to do. Yep. Yep. They're worried. Wow. They're, they're waiting for the next one. Wow. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. wild. It is. It is. Yeah. So. All right. Well, we, we love to end with funny anecdotes, funny stories from the classroom, because uh, we know ridiculous things happen in schools every day. And sometimes you just need to laugh about it. So when you're sitting around or catch up with somebody and they find out you're in the world of education and they ask you for, for a funny story or, or you think of something that cracks everybody up, what, what comes to mind? Uh, I've got two, actually, if I could. Yeah. Um, so many, many years ago, I, I, I was a, both a phys ed and, and social studies major. So social studies is, I'm not sure about the context for you, lumping in history and geography mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my phys ed days, young, young man, early 20s, I remember I was teaching uh, phys ed 30, we call it here grade 12, and we were doing a, a baseball unit, and I was pitching. And my kids were great. They're just a fantastic group. So you got a picture of 30 of them divided into teams. And I always took the a real rigorous academic approach. I taught them the rules, how to score the game, all this stuff. Anyways, we're in this really tight game, you can imagine. And the kids are having a blast. And remember, I'm pitching. I don't know if the bases were loaded. That sounds almost too much of an exaggeration. But <laughs> anyways, so the ball got hit and uh, went to uh, second base and um, to Jay, I remember his name, JJ. I won't mention his last name. Uh, he was a good ball player. And we had a player that was, uh, one of the other students was rounding third, coming for home, you know, the old story. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, so I thought I'm going to do like a good pitcher and I'm going to go down on the mound. And cause the throw's coming basically directly from behind me to home plate. Yeah. Out of the way. And he could throw the ball and he cracked yeah. me right in the back of the head. Oh. oh. <laughs> so he caught, he, he threw it really hard. I'd like to think he didn't do it deliberately. I'm pretty sure he didn't. <laughs> so there I am. I'm laying on the mound and literally like Tweety Bird flying around my head. Yeah. Like and all the kids like are literally, Mr. Bass, are you okay? Mr. Bass, yes. are you okay? And I remember looking up at them. I'm like, where am I? What's going on? So it took me a couple of minutes, but I shook it off. He felt so terrible about it. Anyways, he bought me lunch. And, uh, oh, anyways, that's, that's one. The other one, um, Interesting. It, it ties into this, this podcast and the theme. I was, um, in my first district uh, office job, as I said, I was, su- I was associate superintendent when I was doing my, I'm a server and describing my career. And, uh, the, the thing that hit me that we didn't talk about today hit me really hard because I was so focused on being around people and, and students and, and, 
you know, I just got such a charge out of, out of trying to help them that when I went to central office, I didn't realize how, how surreal and quiet it would be. So I went out into the community mm-hmm. and I began because I coached so many sports throughout my life. I, I actually had to coach because I had to be around youth again. And I coached a lot of sports in the community and in schools. So here's this associate superintendent who's now coaching hockey in the community. So I'll fast forward. This sounds like a Casey at the bat story as well. Um, some, uh, uh, my daughter, of course, when we moved to this community, she was a ringette player. They didn't have ringette, so she switched to hockey. And I'm no idea hockey. what no what idea what ringette player means. Ringette is basically a, a hockey stick that doesn't have a blade on it, and there's a rubber ring about you know that big around, and you know you basically hold it on your stick and you pass it. And anyways, it's a really fast game. It's a really good game. Oh, okay, anyway. I'll be good. okay. So, um, listeners, just switch. just YouTube ringette and and. Exactly. Uh, and oh, there'll be a link in the show notes. Yes. So switched switched to uh, hockey, which I had coached for a lot of years as well. And but my daughter switched. Anyways, great group of girls um, that uh, you know were learning the game. It was bantam, so they were whatever thirteen, fourteen. Anyways, we went to the we went to the final in our zone, and we're in the the third period. And this is the truth. This sounds like an exaggeration, Casey, at the bat, but we we're in the third period. About uh, five minutes left in the game, we were tied four four. And, uh, and this defenseman that I had, you know, she went up the one side of the ice and she had lots of speed and, and she shot the puck and it hit for those that, that don't follow hockey. I mean, obviously the crossbar is the, you know, mm-hmm. the net, the top part of the net. She hit the crossbar and it went out of play and whistled. She comes back to the bench and she's just like, Oh my God, she's just devastated. And I, you know, the play started again and I went over and I said, Kaylee, what's wrong? And she goes, I'm so sorry, coach. I said, for what? She goes, if only I could have put it in. She goes, you always taught us to look for, you know, you know, to tell, be able to tell you what I was shooting at. And I'm telling you, coach, she, the goalie was cheating to the, to the, to the near side. And I had that far side top corner open and I took the shot. And she goes, I'm so sorry. I missed. And I said, I'm so proud of you for taking the shot. Yes. <laughs> and, and her, her body, like, like she was just all hunched and, and she was just devastated. And when I said that, her body language completely changed. We ended up losing yeah. in overtime, <laughs> but that wasn't the important piece. The important mm-hmm. piece was that life lesson will never leave me mm-hmm. because I taught those, those young athletes to take those risks. And here she was so wired by an education system and a society a win-lose draw all the time that she mm-hmm. felt despite a year of coaching her about taking these risks yes. and shooting where the goalie isn't, she felt in the biggest moment that she let me down and her teammates down. Oh. And I reminded her that she did everything right. Yeah. And you know, that, that was just, uh, yeah, even when you do everything right, it doesn't always go, it doesn't always go well. Exactly. But, but I mean, so many young players, it doesn't matter what the sport is. I mean, in hockey, they, they teach you when you're from knee high to a grasshopper to hit the net and goalies, you know, you call it a bread basket in the stomach. You basically mm. shoot the puck and the goalie smothers it. And then there's a whistle. Yeah. The players sort of go back to the bench and they're all proud because the coach is going to be happy because I hit the net. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I taught my players. Just like Wayne Gretzky, you must know Wayne Gretzky yes. in hockey, our Canadian icon. He, one of his famous sayings was when he was asked why he was successful in such a prolific goal scorer, he says, I shoot the puck where the goalie isn't. There you go. There you go. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it's that wiring that we, and it's mm-hmm. no different in anything. You know, we wire young, young people, you call them young humans, to take the, the really conservative approach to pretty much everything that they do. Do they, when they're answering, you know, answers on quizzes or showing their work of those, they're going to take safe routes. They're not, you know, not want to be creative. And it's unfortunate that we rip that creativity and that risk taking and, you know, out of, out of our youth. And I would argue even as adults, our society does not reward that type of thinking. We're starting to see it in corporate America where mm-hmm. companies are, are really giving employees time to, to be thinking about innovation and have reflection mm-hmm. time. Yeah, but what you're talking about—it's interesting. We we also interviewed a, a sports psychologist. We had that similar sort of of thing where you know schools and sports, everybody just looks at the final score at the end. Right. Nobody nobody knows what's going on day to day. You don't see what's happening at the training. You don't see who's getting better or how the coach is doing or what's really happening inside the players. You only see the final score. 
and and that's an impossible way to judge what's really going on and and unfortunately that's how the public sees schools you know that that is the only thing unfortunately and that's how we assess systems and how we assess schools and how we assess individual young humans capacity mm-hmm. and it's really unfortunate because uh, again back to sports i mean we maybe many of us have had these experiences i've coached some teams where we were totally outmanned and outgunned and i remember saying you know back to hockey i remember saying to some of my uh, this one team they were all first year players we were competing against second year players and i didn't say to them we're not going to win tonight but i said let's make a goal of our average shots per game have been whatever it was. I don't remember. 22. Right. Let's try to get 27 or more shots today. Mm-hmm. And in that game, we went out. We lost by like four or five goals. We got 30-some shots. I, I went in and I said, went in and I said, look, we won based upon this measure. Mm-hmm. That's our improvement. We're going to yep. continue to set these baby steps for us, and we're going to measure our progress based on that, not the score of the game. Wow. What did Einstein say about a frog? Like, if the frog was always taught about being dumb because he couldn't climb a tree or whatever he said, the frog would live its life thinking that he was dumb, right? And something to that effect. I'm yes. mixing words here, but it's how we assess. It's the same thing about education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These yeah. kids, it's like, I didn't get, you know, a hundred percent on my, my trig test. Yeah. Oh, I guess you're a complete failure. Math. <laughs> good at math. Yeah. So silly. So silly. My dad coached us, um, playing basketball, um, when I, so I was maybe, 10, 11, 12. So, so it's about that, about that, about that same age. And so kids that age aren't really great at, at basketball in general. You know what I mean? The scores would be like, you know, 22 to 18 or something like that. You know, we had yeah. very few shots made. So we had this one guy on the team though, um, is, uh, that, um, his name was Michael and he was, and, and he was really good. He ended up at one point getting like, I don't think he played NBA, but he, he got like a 10 day contract at one point, all this kind of stuff. So anyway, so, it's the last play of the game. He gets, he gets fouled, right? So the time's, time's almost run out. There's, there's like five seconds left or whatever. So my dad calls him over and he said, listen, you got, you're getting two foul shots. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to make the first one. The second one, I want you to hit the front of the rim and have it bounce off, catch that rebound and put it back up. That'll give us three points. And we'll win the game because we're down by, we're down by two or whatever it is. He hits the first free throw, you know, 12 year old nice. hits the front of the rim, gets the rebound, puts it back up and the put up misses. Oh. And he oh. is devastated. Oh. And he comes over to my dad and he's like, I screwed it up. And he's like, no, he's like, there's like, no one at this level that's ever going to do that <laughs> then actually have the chance to put the second shot up. The fact that it hit the front of the rim and you got it and actually had an attempt at putting it back is like astronomical. He's like, I just put it out there because I'm hoping you can do it. You came way closer than anyone should ever come. And the fact that it didn't go in doesn't even matter. He's like, you like you did exactly what I told you to do and the shot just didn't fall for you. So like, that's you awesome. know. Feel, feel, feel good about it. So it's weird that I can remember that like a, a hundred years ago. But, um, but yeah. <laughs> but thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. This has been an absolute blast. I hope, um, our listeners, um, really enjoyed it and got some stuff. And I don't know if we have any superintendents listening. I know we have some principals that listen. I don't know. You, you don't have any book or, um, uh, program or anything that you, that you're plugging that people need to, um, to, um, follow you on or anything like that. Do you have any of that kind of stuff? I don't even know. I don't. I have a book in progress, but but no. Okay. To shamelessly plug. Okay. I appreciate that. Cool. Okay, that's fine. We don't. Everyone doesn't have to plug everything. I just want to make sure if you did that we that we that we did it. So thanks again. We really appreciate coming. As we as we always say, listeners. Um. Oh, first of all, and if you're listening and you really like this, you know, send it to your superintendent. We always tell you to to like share the episodes. You have a superintendent. You want them to be like this. You got tons of free time. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean. Yeah. If you have to, if you have to create a a, a fresh they, Google, they can ex- listen to it on their way to those uh, observations that they're doing. Yeah, if you have, and if you're scared of your superintendent, you know, just create a new Google account that's anonymous and and, and share it with them. Let's we'll share it with them that way. But but please, you know, keep on spreading the um the unprofessional uh, message around there. And as we always say, guys, stay unprofessional. Thank you, and stay unprofessional. Stay unprofessional. Stay unprofessional. 
Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Thank Bass. you so, Thank you. so much. That was that awesome. Was, that was a blast. I, I did this I did this the other day. So it's it's the end of the um semester here, right? And so kids are like turning in stuff. And I'm I'm really lax in terms of um if you turn it in before grades are final, I'm grading it, I'm giving you full credit. So 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 no problem. I go over to one of their, their tables and I'm like, Mr. Mealy, did you get that email I sent you? I said, Yeah, I deleted it. I'm like, why'd you delete it? I go, I don't like you. <laughs> and if you send me another email, I'm taking five points off your grade. And then I just, I don't show the smile. I just walk away and just like, I just, I just, I just, just let it simmer. You know what I mean? And I didn't come back for like 10 minutes, you know, just let them just, just stew. You know, and obviously when I've developed a relationship, we have, we laugh all the time. And the other kids at the table were just, they were in hysterics. You know what I mean? And they're like, these are I, seniors just for yes, the record. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not doing it to like little kids, but anyway, but yeah, but I, I do, I, I love damaging the psyche of young people. But, um, <laughs> Build character. Yeah, I'm glad it wasn't a wasn't a grade one student. <laughs> <laughs> Would have just crushed them. Oh, goodness. oh so much fun! But I love I love I love.